Now I'm going to go ahead and, uh, and read the scripture for today. Um, but after we go through the scripture, I want to back up a little bit and go over or, or rehash a little bit of what we talked about already. But if you got your Bible, turn over to Matthew chapter 5. Same scripture that Susan read earlier. We're going to be reading 43 through 48. <clears throat> Matthew 5, starting in 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of God for the people of God. So again, I want to back up um, before before we before we get into today's scripture. I want to back up a few weeks and lay some more groundwork, uh, foundation. I think all of y'all were here back on December twentieth when, when I already talked about some of this stuff. But I just want to go through it one more time because it's, it's so important to, set, to lay that foundation for, for where we're going today and where we're going in the future. But if you remember back on the 20th of December, it was the fourth Sunday of Advent, I kind of talked to you guys a little bit about the theme that I think God has laid on my heart for our churches in the upcoming year. Back in Jan January 2020, I, you know, we talked about being a Romans 12 church, and that was or that was going to be our theme. And we went through, at least through March, a good number of sermons and teachings regarding the writings of Paul in, in the 12th chapter of Romans and, and how we could live out um, what the, the church that he describes in that chapter. This year, I think God has laid another one on, another idea, another, another theme on my heart, and that is loving like Jesus. In other words, what it looks to love like Jesus. What, what it looks like for us to live that out in our daily lives. But more specifically, what we're, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at how to love like Jesus through the lens of the Sermon on the Mount. And you can find that in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. So that's kind of where we're going over the next, I don't know, and, and, probably, and, not, and we'll not do it every week. It'll, probably, it'll be you know here and there. We'll sprinkle it in with other sermons and stuff like that so we don't get sick of it. But I think, again, this is just going to be an overall theme, and I'm very much looking forward to it. I love the Sermon on the Mount. I love preaching on it. I, I felt a little inferior uh, last year preaching on it, and I was, I was a little scared because I didn't think I was up to the task. Um, but, but I feel like I am this year, so we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna go for it. So if you guys recall, back in the summer or early fall, we did a ser another sermon series. It was called the Jesus Creed. And that series was based on that passage from Mark that we read this morning. Um, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Um, and it was, uh, it's based on that scripture. And the series was also based on a book by that same title. And a couple of things that we discovered. Number one, we discovered that all of the Old Testament commandments, all 613 Old Testament commandments, 
could be reduced to two commandments, according to Jesus. Loving God and loving your neighbor. That's what we recited this morning. What's the greatest of all the commandments he was asked? He said, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. All 613, and that's a lot of them, could be reduced to two simple commandments. As a matter of fact, the, um, the man who authored the Jesus Creed book, he's also a seminary professor. And I can't recall what class it is that he, that he does this, but he said he does this. And one of his classes, one of the assignments that he gives his students is to go through the Old Testament, all 613 laws, and to make a notation beside each one of those. And if, what that signified, loving God or loving others. LG or LO. And that's their assignment, and you can do that. You can roll through the Old Testament, and you can see all 613 of these commandments, and, and you can notate it right there. Does this apply to loving God or loving others? Do the same thing with the New Testament, all the commandments of Jesus, all the teachings of Christ. You can see it very, very plainly. Everything is reduced to those two simple, simple commandments. The other thing that we discovered was that according to Jesus, loving our neighbor and loving God are equal in the eyes of God. Loving God carries the same weight in the eyes of God as loving our neighbor. I told you that and it's in, again in the scripture that we read this morning. I think yes. And there's a there's a there's a reason actually. The the script the translation that I gave you guys is from the New Living Translation, and I and I did that for a reason because I think it gives the most accurate um, the most accurate translation for this particular scripture. And what he says, the way that the NLT translates that line in that scripture, he said, "Love God all your heart, soul, mind, and strength." He says. The second is equally important. The second is equally important. Again, I'll reemphasize. Loving God and loving our neighbor are equal in the eyes of God. I cannot stress that enough. You can find the same story. You can find the same scriptures, pretty much the same scripture that we recited from Mark over in the book of Matthew. I want to read that to you real quick. You don't have to turn to it, but you can find the same story over in uh, Matthew chapter 22. So God or Jesus is asked, um, you know, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm sorry, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest. Again, Jesus says, the second is like it, or the second is equal to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he wraps it up with this. All the laws, all the laws and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Let me drive this home a little bit more to make sure that we all get it. This is a pattern. This is a theme that is repeated over and over and over again in the New Testament. This idea of loving God and or loving others being the very embodiment of our Christian ethic, being the very embodiment of all of the commands that were ever given. Galatians chapter 5, 14. You can read it on Sandy's mask back there. For example... For the whole law can be summed up in this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Romans 13, 18. Owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of the law. James 2, 8. Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal laws found in Scripture. Here it is. Love your neighbor as yourself. 1 John 4, 7. 
Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God, and anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. Woo! We could go on and on. But I think you get the point here. Loving God is equal, or loving our neighbor is equal to loving God. It's very important. We can, everything falls up under that. Everything. I told you also that I learned, as, as was suggested by the author of this book, to start reciting this Jesus Creed throughout the days. And it is something that I've continued to do today. I generally say it to myself. I generally pray it. Actually, it's a prayer. I'll say it when I get up in the morning. I'll say it when I get up or, or go to bed at night. And I'll generally find myself doing it, I don't know, 10, 20 times a day if I think about it. And what will happen, you know, this is the reason that we have the Bible. A lot of times, and I've told you guys this before, and I know I'm talking really fast because I've got a lot I want to get through. But when we read the Bible, a lot of times what we're reading the Bible for is information. That's what we do over in Sunday school. We're trying to glean information from the Bible. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. That's, 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 that has its place. But when we read the Bible as Christians a lot of times, particularly as, as it applies to growing our faith, we're not reading the Bible for, trans for information. We're trying to ingest the Bible for transformation. We want to be transformed. We want to be transformed into the mind and the heart of Christ. So when, that's why, one of the reasons we have Holy Scripture is that hopefully the Holy Spirit will work through this Scripture to transform us. So going back to reciting the Jesus Creed, that's one of the reasons that I do it because I can see, I can feel that transformation happen when I do it. It reorients me to people. It makes me a little bit more compassionate to people. My enemies sometimes. It makes me a little bit more open to the plight or the needs of other people. And I guarantee you that's what it'll do to you if you'll learn, you learn to do that. Again, this is one of the reasons why we have scripture to transform us into the mind and heart of Christ. So, with all that, this scripture from Mark is serving as one of our foundational scriptures for loving like Jesus. Because now we all have the understanding how important loving our neighbors is. This is one of our foundational scriptures. I'd like you to memorize it personally. We are going to recite it a good bit here in the sanctuary on Sundays. But I'd like you to memorize it. I'd like you to give it a shot. Try it out. Try it out in the next week or so. Recite this thing a few times during the day. See if you don't start getting a little bit of a diff different perspective on your neighbors. Another scripture that I want to use as a foundation, and this is something else we talked about back on the December 20th, is John 13, 34 through 35. You don't have to look it up, but I'm going to repeat it. Um, another one that I really encourage you guys to memorize, if, if, if at all possible, but it reads, So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Y'all remember talking about this. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. One more time, like I said back on the, back, back on the 20th, Jesus gives us a new commandment here. It's very important. It's very important that we understand this word, new. Because more than, and I saw your face light up when I preached on this, Lois White. And you, got, you had that aha moment. Um, but there's a reason this thing is new, Okay. Yeah, Jesus has already told him, you know, love your neighbor is important, all that good stuff. But Jesus says, I'm giving you a new one here. What's new about this one? Just as I have loved you. Just as I have loved you. So you too are to love one another. Now that ups the game a good bit. That ups the game a lot. Because we're talking about Jesus here. We're talking about the man who literally... 
God who literally gave his life for humanity. And we see how he espouses and how he lives out that love in the New Testament for his disciples. Just as I have loved you, so you too are to love one another. That's a big order. That's a, that's a tall, tall order. So again, these two scriptures, the one from Mark 12 and John 13, are going to serve as our foundation as to show us and to remind us of the importance of loving our neighbor. It's our starting point. Based on the words of Christ himself that we read from Mark and John, we know that loving our neighbor is our primary Christian ethic. Loving our neighbor is our primary Christian ethic while we are here on earth. I'm going to take it a step further. I'm going to say that it is our primary purpose on earth. If you are a Christian, if you are a disciple of Christ, and you want to know what your primary purpose on earth is, this is it. Loving God and loving your neighbor. It's why we were here. It's, it's why we are here. This is the reason that we were created. God created us to be in relationship with himself and with other people. Bottom line, we were created for one thing, to love God and to love people. Read Genesis. So speaking of love, we talked about the word agape. Most of y'all are probably familiar with that. That's the Greek uh, New Testament word for love. And uh, it's basically, the way most of us were probably taught is that it's, it's that self-sacrificial, it's not this romantic type of love that we think of, but it's this self-sacrificial, self-giving love that's, that's best recognized in the character of Christ. And we expounded on that a little bit, and, and I talked about five different points. I talked about five different points of godly love. And we looked through the Old Testament in particular, and we looked at the way that God loved people and the way that he expressed his love toward people. And, and we came up with the definition. I'm going to remind you, the definition that, that, that we came up with was that love is a, re a rugged and emotional commitment of presence, advocacy, and direction. Love is a rugged, emotional, most of us know what emotional is, Commitment of presence, being with people. A rugged commitment to be with people. A rugged commitment of presence and advocacy. A rugged commitment to advocate on behalf of people. To be what? For people. Advocacy and direction. Getting involved with the lives of people. Helping them to become the people person that God created them to be. That's what direction is when I say direction. Love, a rugged emotional commitment of presence, being with, advocating for, and direction. Helping people to become the persons that God created them to be. So with all that, now that we know what love is, well, now that we know what our primary purpose is of Christians, two questions. What does this love look like and how do we do it? What does this love look like? How do we do it? Well, I think, I believe, that the answer to those two questions lies in Jesus' most well-known and longest sermon in the Bible, the Sermon on the Mount. Again, in Matthew 5 through 7, we can certainly see that loving our neighbor through today's scripture is not easy. 
This is not, this is not, I need my wife here to give me a word. Superficial love, this is not, type of love we generally think about by our cultural standards. This is a deeply involved, rugged commitment for people. Let me give you some idea, um, a couple of theories on the Sermon on the Mount before we, before we get, get into it. There are, some, there are several theories, several, and this is important. I don't want to get too deep, but I feel it's important enough to mention. There are several theological and doctrinal theories or schools of thought regarding what the Sermon on the Mount is, what it was, what the purpose of it was as far as why, why Jesus taught it and why we have it in the Bible. One of those theories says that the Sermon on the Mount is uh, <clears throat> basically just basically Jesus' way of giving us some very unobtainable, of listing some unobtainable qualities that, uh, to, um, to point out the very depths of our sins. This is one theory. The Sermon on the Mount... The, the, the directives of Christ in the sermon are simply unobtainable qualities that Jesus gives us to help us realize the depths of our sin. A second idea behind the Sermon on the Mount is that its directives are reserved strictly for people of a higher calling. Clergy, priests, nuns, monks, for example. Another one say, another theory says that uh, the words of Jesus are simply something that we strive for, maybe in our personal lives, but not so much in our public lives. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense, I'm sure. That's why I think God dropped another idea on my mind this morning. I want our people to know that there is no such thing between our spiritual lives and our personal lives. There is no separation between our spiritual life, our personal life, our public life. Everything is spiritual. I want our people to get that. Because I don't think a lot of people get that. I think a lot of people come to church and hear the preacher preach and sing a few songs and they drop their Christianity at the door when they leave. That ain't what Christianity is. Everything that we do is spiritual. Every thought that we have Every word that comes out of our mouth, every action that we take, everything, everything is spiritual. Washing dishes, spiritual. Going to work, spiritual. Y'all stick with me. <laughs> Think on these things, okay? Every word that we speak to somebody is a reflection of the Christ, the Holy Spirit that dwells within our hearts. Every attitude that we have when we're washing dishes, when we are at work, is a reflection of the Christ that dwells within our hearts and in our souls. There's no separation. All of these theories, for the record, I don't believe a single one of them. <clears throat> I don't think any of these propositions that I've listed are true, and I don't think that John Wesley or our, or our Methodist heritage have ever taught that. As a matter of fact, when speaking of the Sermon on the Mount, John Wesley called the teachings of Jesus the sum of all true religion. And that's what I believe. There are some metaphorical statements within the Sermon on the Mount. I think at one place, God, Jesus talks about 
cutting off your tongue metaphor. But for the most part, I take the Sermon on the Mount very literally. And I believe, that's, I believe that was Jesus' intent. And I believe that was what our Wesley tradition teaches. And uh, that's, the, that's the route that we're going with as we go through the sermon. I think it's very literal. I think that Jesus, crazy as this sounds to people, and you have heard me say this before, I think that Jesus really wants us to be and do the things that he said be and do. I don't understand why that's such a, why that's such a crazy statement to people, but apparently it is. I do understand, and we're going to talk about it here in just a second. So anyway, that's where we're coming from. The Sermon on the Mount, in my opinion, as far as what our, what our tradition teaches, it is, is that it's, it's not just for me. It, it's not just for priests and, 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 and monks and nuns. It is for everybody who calls themselves a disciple of Christ. It points us to the way that God loves. It points us to what God's kingdom looks like. It points us to how we can live and how we can and live that kingdom on earth. I'll remind you what we pray when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come on earth earth this shows us what god's kingdom looks like this shows us how we can live and reveal that kingdom to other people while we are here it shows us godly love it shows us what neighborly love looks like and it points us to that that word that none of us like it points us to holiness understand again what holiness is as far as the methodist tradition is concerned holiness is just another word for love it's not an outward, outward anything. It's not about the way that we dress. It's not even about the way that we talk necessarily. It's an inward condition. Holiness is love for God and neighbor. And that expresses itself outwardly in a number of ways. And it's all different for different people. Some people are more reserved in their language. Some people are more reserved in their dress, that type of thing. But at the end of the day, holiness is about love for God and love for neighbor. So with all that groundwork laid... I thought that we would kick off our look at the Sermon on the Mount with probably the most challenging and the most hard to swallow directives of Jesus that are given in it. Loving our enemies. Praying for those who hurt us. Praying for those who harm us. Praying for those who persecute us. Let me, I'm going to reread it one more time. I'm going to reread it one more time. You've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward is that? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet people, only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, I want to point out a couple interesting things about this in particular. Um, when we went through the Jesus Creed series, y'all probably remember, or maybe you don't remember, that when Jesus said love, Jesus was asked what's the most important commandment. When he said love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, I told you that that first portion of what he said. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
what's something called the Shema. It's a, it's a very ancient, very traditional Jewish prayer. And you can find that in the book of Deuteronomy. It's one that, that Jesus would have been taught by Joseph and Mary. He would have prayed that prayer in the morning when he got up. He would have prayed it when he went to bed at night. It's, it's a very prominent prayer, and it has been for thousands of years in the Jewish tradition. So when he was asked that question, love the Lord, he said, love the Lord your God, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He was quoting this prayer called the Shema. However, he added to it. And he added, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he got that from Leviticus 19.18. However, that is not the entirety of Leviticus 19.18. Allow me to read Leviticus 19.18 in its entirety. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people. But love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> I need to see some smiles. I, I, need, I need to see somebody got it like I did. Don't seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people. But love your neighbor as yourself. That sounds a whole heck of a lot like love your enemies to me. Interestingly enough, first of all, understand that loving our enemies didn't begin with Jesus. Loving your enemies is, is part of God's will, and it has been for thousands of years. It was, it was thousands of years prior to Christ. It's always been there. It was established by God long before Jesus even came on the scene. Interestingly enough, there is absolutely, listen to this, there is no evidence in history that this scripture, that Leviticus 19, was ever quoted publicly between the time of Moses and the time of Jesus. You're talking thousands of years here. You're talking a rich Jewish tradition. There is no evidence that this scripture, Leviticus 19.18, was ever quoted by anybody between the time of Moses and the time of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? It is to me. It was an obviously a very neglected text. And I would say... Probably because hating your enemy was probably just as prominent and accepted in those cultures as it is our, as it is our today, ours today. But regarding hating your enemy, let's look at a couple words. Two words stick out in the first part of this scripture regarding hating your enemy. Heard and said. You have heard it said to hate your enemy. You have heard it said. Jesus does not say that you have seen it written anywhere because it's not written. You're not going to find the idea of hating your enemy anywhere, anywhere in the Bible. There's one place in Psalms, but as we all know, Psalms are prayers that were written by people. They're not necessarily the will of God. You're not going to find any directive about hating your enemy from Genesis to Revelation. But you have heard it was said. People said it. That was the accepted policy, if you will. Just like people today. We like the old eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, right? So did they. It wasn't easy to love your enemy back then, so we, we excused it. We didn't quote Leviticus 19.18. We dropped that from our, from our memory. Just like we have a tendency to drop a lot of this scripture from our memory. Or we find ways to justify ignoring it. Or at least minimizing it. You're not going to find it written anywhere that, that uh, 
to hate your enemy. Again, hating your enemy was probably just as most just as important in Jesus' time as it was as it is in our time. Just as we do today, you know, they could justify their hate. Somebody did something to me. Don't we do that? We can justify we love to justify our own hatred, our own disdain. We like revenge. We like retaliation. We'll justify that stuff all day long because somebody did something to us. And we will ignore, we will ignore, ignore, ignore the words of Jesus. But here's the thing, folks. <laughs> Most of us can learn, have learned to tolerate our enemies. But Jesus doesn't say tolerate your enemies. <laughs> Jesus says, love your enemies. Toleration is pretty easy. We can pretty well sit in a room with the same person even if we don't like them. Most of us. Most of us can maintain our composure long enough to sit in a room with somebody we don't like or somebody that steps on our toes long enough. That ain't what Jesus said. He didn't say tolerate your enemies. He said, love your enemies. So, let's return to our definition. Holy schmoly. I got to do this to my enemies. I have to give them a rugged, emotional commitment of my presence my advocacy, and I have to help them make, become the kind of person that God wants them to be? If you believe the words of Jesus, yes. If you believe the words of Christ, yes. Because that's what he wants. He wants us to long. <laughs> this is so painful, isn't it? He wants us to long for the good of our enemies. He wants us to work for the good of our enemies. He wants us to be committed to them and with them. He wants us to be committed to their good. He wants us to advocate on their behalf. And he wants us to work with them to be the people that God wants them to, and created them to be. Praying for our enemies and loving our enemies go hand in hand. I'm sure we've all probably prayed for our enemies at some point. But I think we most, if we were honest, we'd probably do the bare minimum when it, even when it comes to that. We kind of see praying for our enemies as an easy way to get over the hurt, the fear, the resentment, the hate, and the discontent that we have in our hearts. But no, our prayers for our enemies should mirror the love that we are called to have for them. Think about this. Think about places in Scripture where you see this play out. Think about places in Scripture where we see this crazy, irrational love. one of y'all know. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's enemy love. Think about Stephen in the book of Acts. Who was in the process of being stoned to death. An angry mob near to the point of death Stephen says, Lord, do not hold this against them. Think about the words of Paul in Romans 12, 
who writes, bless those who persecute you. Remember this? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, when we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. How many of us can say that we do this? I'm going to repeat it. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. One more thing to point out is that love is not exclusive. Verse 45. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? If you greet only your people, your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Love is not exclusive. Exclusive. God causes the sun to rise on the just and the unjust, on the evil and on the good. He sends rain to the righteous and the unrighteous. God does not discriminate on his love or his grace. God does not discriminate on his love or his grace. It isn't exclusive and it is not prejudicial. As I said earlier, undoubtedly, as we read in the scriptures in Jesus' time, people like to pick and choose who they love, just like a lot of us tend to do. But Christ doesn't make any bones about it in these words, in these scriptures. He knows that the love of Christ is inclusive and is extended to all people. You don't have to look very far in the Gospels to see how Jesus lived this out. You see, the same, the same thing that, happened, that was going on in Jesus' time happened. It goes on in our time. We, we pick and choose who we love. We, we pick and choose who is deserving. We pick and choose who we hang out with. A lot of times we pick and choose based on our religious beliefs. Look at the way that the religious folks of Jesus' time in the New Testament treated certain people. And look at the way that Jesus treated those same people. Look, for example, the story of the Good Samaritan. <clears throat> the Good Samaritans, we all know, are the hero of that story. Look to the story of the woman on the well who was also a Samaritan and was also a woman. Not only was Christ talking to a woman at midday, he was talking to a Samaritan. What, what in the world has that got to do with it, Jerry? Samaritans and Jews traditionally hated each other. Samaritans and Jews traditionally hated each other. The Jews had a particular disdain for the Samaritans. They thought that they were half-breeds. So they had racial issues going on, and they also had religious issues going on. They thought that they were better than. Look at the way that Jesus treated lepers in the New Testament. Religious people, religious leaders, considered lepers to be unclean. They would not go near them. Jesus breaks those standards. He breaks those cultural boundaries. Look at the way that he hangs out with tax collectors. By the way, Matthew was one of those. And I know we don't like tax collectors today, but 2,000 years ago, they really didn't like them. They were awful people. They were known for being thieves, basically. They'd take what you owed the government, 
and they'd add to it and stuff their pockets. <clears throat> Jesus opened his arms to all kind of people that even the religious folks of their day shied away from. Unfortunately, I see that pattern a lot today as well. I don't like when I have conversations with brothers and sisters and it, and it comes out during the conversation that they've got a particular disdain for non-Christian people. Or they have a particular disdain for a particular religion. That's not of Christ. And if you don't believe me, I will refer you back to the stories that I just referenced. We're not called to hate people of other religions, folks. Let's get that perfectly straight. We ain't got to agree with them, and, we, and that's fine. We're not going to agree with them. But I'll guarantee you, we're never going to draw them into Christianity by hating and disdaining them. Ever. That will never happen. We are not called to hate people of other religions. We are not called to hate people of other races. We are not called to separate ourselves from people of other economic situations, people of other cultural backgrounds. Yet we do this. Yet we do this. What happened if we stopped doing that? What happened? What would happen? If we ceased to do this, this is irrational to us. This is crazy. This is unreasonable. Loving our enemies makes absolutely no sense to us. We don't want to do it. We don't want to love our enemies. And because of that, we can concoct a whole myriad of reasons not to. We just don't want to do it. It's easy to disdain, it's easy to resent, it's easy to want revenge. Loving our enemies the way Jesus prescribed goes against our human instinct. It's not natural. I will add this, and I would argue that it goes against our sinful instinct. <clears throat> it goes against our natural sinful instinct to seek retaliation, revenge, and disdain. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. We are people of grace, and we are people of compassion. Crazy grace. Crazy crazy, irrational compassion. The same kind of grace, the same kind of compassion that has been extended to every single person in this room by Christ. It doesn't make sense teaching on enemy love and you know, even the gospel itself, it just doesn't make sense to us. <clears throat> but they're life-giving and they're grace-filled. Things that Jesus teaches are life-giving. And they are grace-filled and they reveal the kingdom of God, which looks absolutely nothing like the kingdom of the world. Only thing we got to ask is, are we going to follow it? This is the tough stuff. This is the hard stuff. Enemy love's not easy. That's why I chose to jump, to jump, to jump, because it's probably the hardest thing we're going to learn in the Sermon on the Mount. Do we take it seriously? Do we think it's for real? Do we think that Christ really meant what he said? If so, are we going to respond to it, or are we just going to ignore it, minimize it? Say, ah, oh, Jesus, don't really, he, don't really, he didn't really mean that. I'm going to encourage you guys to give it a shot. I'm going to encourage you just as I've encouraged you to, to uh, memorize the Jesus Creed. I'm going to get, encourage you to give it a shot this week. I'm going to encourage you to reach out 
in some form of radical love for your enemy. I'll be done in just a second. <clears throat> Reach out to some kind of radical love for your enemy. Maybe that enemy is your literal neighbor. Maybe that enemy is somebody at work. Maybe that enemy is a family member. But there's other enemies that we have too. They make everybody a little uncomfortable. Sometimes we don't like people because they're part of a certain group. We label people. And simply because we drop that label on people, we don't like them. That could be a cultural thing. That could be a racial thing. It could be an economic thing. It could be a political thing. Reach out to those people this week. you tend to lean to the right on the political spectrum, I want you to reach out to the most liberal, tree-hugging, transgender person you've ever met in your life, and I want you to love on them like Jesus loves on them. If you tend to lean to the left on the political spectrum, I want you to reach out to the most conspiracy theory given, MAGA hat wearing person that you have ever seen in your life, and I want you to love on them. Because that's the culture that we live in. We have so separated ourselves just, just by that one example. Reach out to these people. Maybe they are in your personal life. Maybe they're on, maybe they're on, your, maybe they're on your social media feed. Show them the love of Christ because I'm going to tell you what happens. And I'm done. <clears throat> What's going to happen when we start loving our enemy is our enemy is going to become Jesus.